Welcome to the latest episode of Tech Salescraft with me, James Hounslow. And today, finally, <laughs> I've got uh, the founder of Jiminy, uh, Tom Lavery, on the show. Tom, welcome. How are you doing today? Hey, James. Good to see you. I know it's been a while. We've been trying to arrange this. <laughs> Please. I don't know how long it's been. Is it six months, nine months? Longer? It's, it's, it's been about that. But good things come to, um, to those who wait. So, Tom, I was excited to get you on the show for a number of reasons. The biggest one is that you are a sales leader in the past and a founder business and getting information through the eyes of a founder who's come from a sales background rather than a technical background I think is crucial and you're also going through funding and the product that you are selling as a business I think is vital for VPs of sales at the moment particularly Mm -hmm. with uh, remote working and people hiring huge amounts of salespeople um, and Mm -hmm. wanting to be able to maximize those but before we get into that a way of getting started as always if you just want to give our viewers a bit of background as to who you are and who Jimny are that would be great yeah absolutely absolutely so you, you kind of did a nice introduction, so I appreciate that, James. And I know you've always been a big advocate of, of what we do, um, yeah. and so I appreciate that. No, like uh, my my background is I used to be in SVP of sales and in, in sales a lot of my life uh, in a tech company, and then about five six years ago started Jiminy. So Jiminy, what we do basically is we help teams create a high performance culture. Now, how how we do that is the platform and the product is conversation intelligence. But it's all about giving uh, revenue teams visibility and performance so they can collaborate, they can coach, and they get insights and data that they, they basically never had before. And that's really, we're very customer-centric and we're really not just enabling with the tech, but we see it as a, a partnership together to help them improve their team's performance and get better. Pre-Jiminy, you were a sales leader. What was your role there? What did it look like? How many people were you responsible for revenue-wise as well? I always think of it as like three chapters, James. Yeah. So because when I started, we had a shitty little office in Notting Hill with like eight or ten of us in it. I'm going back a long time now, like 2008. So, you know, when we started, it was me just selling and I hired the first sales, sales team. So like I was doing all the deals and then we hired two or three salespeople and then we split it out. So that first kind of two, 2008 till sort of late 2010, early 2011, I kind of think is chapter one. We built out the first kind of two teams of salespeople, and probably 10 people. And then we did a private equity management buyout then. So that was like chapter one. Yeah. And chapter two had a five-year private equity cycle you know, building out sales team, grew it into Australia, grew it into the US. Chapter three, moved to the US, did it internationally. And, you know, along the journey, you know, probably by the end, we had about 100 people in, in sales and CS. And, you know, a lot of it was learning as we go. Um, Glenn, the CEO, had done many things before, run a design agency, um, you know, but both of us had never done what we're doing before, I think. 50% of it we did very differently and it worked really well and 50% of it we, we were learning as we go, you know. So before you even arrive at, at the idea of Jiminy, you've mm. covered probably more than um, mm. most sales leaders have done who are probably twice your age. When you started first hiring, was that your first runner at hiring salespeople or have you done that before elsewhere? I so Yeah, interviews because I worked in health clubs and ran sales teams and yeah. You know, when, when I was young, uh, longer. So, again, one of those things you don't get taught unless no. you grow up in a bigger business, you know, maybe how to kind of interview. 
yeah. is something that you, you learn to perfect over time, I think. Yeah. And if I look back at how I used to interview, I'd probably cringe now. <laughs> um, the 24-year-old Tom versus the 30, nearly 38-year-old Tom. Yeah. Uh, you know, kind of interviewing people. But no, I, I, I just think a lot of the time it's experience. But then at the same time, the world has changed a lot in the last sort of 10, 15 years as well. So how you approach things is very different. I'm sure it has. At what point on this journey did you start coming up with the idea of Jiminy? I think the trigger point for me was when I moved to New York in 2013 and we were running what we used to be called Inside Sales Team. Um, but now it's just remote selling and yeah. pretty much everyone's in some way, shape or form does some form of inside selling. And, you know, previous to that in Australia and the UK, where we'd already established the business, every, a lot of it at some point was face to face, like everyone yeah. knows. And, you know, we had these five sales reps kind of like building uh, the first US team out. So you kind of a startup within a big business. And just I found it trying to run global sales for the business. I couldn't see very well or very clearly yeah. what was happening in the UK or Australia. Yeah. I felt blind at the board level. We wanted inside sales, you know, we wanted to coach, train, kind of make these guys better. And obviously you're not going out and riding along going on pitches and meetings so you're like right i need to listen to the phone call that at the time probably using like go to meeting or webex right uh, but it was just really hard to do like i remember we used to do a coaching session on a friday this is back in like 2013 so we'd have an avaya phone system in the office we all use macs and you couldn't yeah. access the files on a mac so we had to buy a separate hp laptop to go in and download the bloody call uh so it was so hard just yeah. to listen to one of the guys conversations so you had yeah. like salesforce go to meeting avaya phone notepad yeah. and pen and i looked at it and got well right there's got to be a better way so the, the the valuable conversations i always thought that's where you move the needle so how could we automate this and kind of bring it all together to help teams ultimately improve and that, yeah. that's kind of all where it sprang from really what was it like living in america selling in america compared to uh, to europe i loved it you know like obviously 50 percent of our customers are still there like i started the business in boston we yeah. have a great presence on g2 we have loads of fantastic american customers and be launching another team there soon you know but i think i think what i like about it is got a lot of american friends this is a lot more direct generally they'll tell you they'll tell you yeah. no quicker <laughs> yeah, tell yeah. You if they they like another provider more or whatever so i think sometimes in europe and this is being English myself, we're a little bit over polite and we don't like yeah. to say it as it is and avoid avoid just um, maybe giving people the answers they want, which yeah. with salespeople probably appreciate quicker. So I think yeah. there's just a bit more transparency. And obviously the US is, you know, just capitalism to the extreme, mm -hmm. biggest amount of funding. You know, there's a lot going on. It's, it's an exciting place to be. There's good energy. So I think, you know, that there was loads to, to learn and, you know, Jiminy wouldn't be Jiminy without me being there for five years and starting the company there, for yeah. sure. So I want to get into the detail of the role of a VP of sales or a sales, let's just class it as a sales leader, because um, we spoke about it a little bit earlier, there's been a huge amount of funding that has gone into organizations over, over recent times. I work with VPs of sales mm -hmm. all the time, founders. I'm um, looking to build out um, sales teams. And I think it gets a little bit lost of what actually the official role of a VP of sales is. And it'd be interesting to get your view. And I'll give you where I'm coming from. My, my insights on it from my side is that you hire a VP of sales with scale. <clears throat> and so 
I would rather call them the coach of sales and their role there is to coach and to enable people to develop and get better. But there seems to be a kind of a spreadsheet warrior um, KPI watching kind of uh, setup for it. When you look at obviously high performance and you've created a tool to help coach and mentor or to allow sales leaders or any leader to be able to, to coach and mentor their people, where, mm-hmm. where do you, what do you view a VP of sales role to be? If you were talking directly to a, a tech founder who was looking to hire his first VP of sales? Oh, like with anything, I have a lot of empathy, you know, when you're trying to hire key people in senior roles and you haven't done the role before it's yeah it's it's very hard to get it right the first time yeah. um you know you, you know in terms of what you're looking for culture fit easier but then the dynamics of working together the skill so it's not an easy thing for, for founders to kind of go through <clears throat> going back to your we got we got to talk about this soon about how to create a high performance sales team and you know i think you're what you're kind of talking about is you know, maybe where you and I kind of grew up where sales management is much more top down, yeah. much more like micromanagement, kind of everyone works in silos and it's like a bit of like president's club. How can I be top of the leaderboard? Yeah. You know, that, that sort of thing. Whereas actually, I think a lot of our customers either do or try to achieve what I'd call a modern sales leader. What I think what you're alluding to is a connector of people. Yeah. You know, like how do I inspire and motivate my team to deliver great results by coaching developing and mentoring them but also enabling them by coaching like where we talk about it it's really feedback right because you're taking a recording and you're giving feedback or giving feedback to each other whether it's self peer-to-peer when you talk about coaching it's like a, a vp of sales one of their team coming to them and asking a question and the vp of sales is giving them the answer or are they saying well, what, what do you think, James? And why do you think that? And letting your team develop and think for themselves uh, and enable them to be efficient without you and be more productive. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think the modern approach is a connector of people and making your team as efficient and effective when you're not there. I've definitely learned uh, the hard way about doing that and still a work in progress, of course. Yeah. You know, trying to encourage in the business to have coaching conversations in, in any kind of format, just day to day, sitting at your desk, someone turns around. You know, you're having a coaching conversation or are you telling, yeah. you know, just giving the answer. So, yeah, I think, I think that connector of people and almost a people management, as you know, yeah. is more important than necessarily understanding how to be awesome at selling a product or how to write this, you know, how to structure this demo or do that. Like you can hire individuals to do all these things these days or the, the sales team can do that. The, the leader needs to be a great leader, puts their team first and manages people. And when you've had your experience, particularly, and, and, and North America is a perfect example of that because pre-COVID, they were the true remote working because you've got so many great states and cities that you can sell into and they are spread across. How much time do you think of VP of sales if they're not sat next to you where it's, it's easier to turn and ask a question for a VP of sales or a sales leader to be picking up the phone and having a conversation in a coaching way rather than asking about uh, what leads they're working on and where deals are at, which tends to be a, a conversation around um, the CRM. Well, look, it's always hard with advice because every business, every size of business is different at a point in time. Yeah. Every vertical is, is, is different. But generally, 
But even if you can take a step back from a founder's perspective, let alone to a CRO or a VP, really, yeah. it's always questioning where am I spending my time? But even the great CEOs that I see spend 60, 70% of their time with prospects and customers just in different ways. Yeah, that's the, yeah. The, the best way to help your business improve, get better. You're listening to them, you're understanding them, you're supporting them in some way, shape or form. And I think we're so lucky, if I look back in time, 2008, like things moved on so quickly, but like having these roles broken down, having revenue operations, like really how much time, a lot of this should be automated, like how much time yeah. does the sales need? They should be looking at the numbers, you know, and then acting on it. Like a lot of the time we talk about it is like if you can have a report and you can have a million reports in HubSpot or Salesforce, but if you don't do anything with the data, it doesn't yeah. really matter. Yeah. So it's like what we try and encourage is like, oh, here's the coaching recommendation. This person's talking too much. You're not asking enough questions. Yeah. Now, what are you doing? How easy is it to then improve them and make them better? So I think the answer is kind of, yeah, of course, you want to balance. You want to see all the data. You want to understand the gaps. But then it's about being proactive and helping the team to to fill those gaps or train and support them to get better. How much time do you think, if someone's got a system like Chimney in play, how mm. much time do you think a, a, a leader should dedicate to listening to calls? <clears throat> do you know what though? There's different ways of, of looking at it. And again, it depends on your size, how many sales reps yeah. you've got, how big the team is. Look, at the end of the day, it's always quality over quantity. People yeah. have this perception like if you're a CEO, you could listen to one call a month and it would just blow your mind and think, oh God, we need to do this with a product or change that or whatever. So for me, it's, it's quality over quantity. You don't need volume. I think, and I think if you look at it, to be honest, the, the biggest value add is that 80% of the call listening is, is rep to self and peer to peer. Yeah. So we, we, talk, we really enable companies to learn how for their teams to self-coach and peer-to-peer -peer coach because the manager intervention or the leader intervention will only ever be 10, 15, 20%. Yeah. Anyway, and it's really important and it's right to do it in a structured way, but it's only ever going to be the smallest part of the puzzle yeah. Yeah. Um, because everyone, uh, you know, an individual AE would have more time to coach themselves than their manager would anyway. So, yeah, I think we kind of spin it in a completely different way because to get the most ROI out of the platform, you know, you've got to think about practically how you can use it in the right way. So you've been going for five, six years now. So I guess when you set up, once you'd created a product that was ready to go, it was yourself that led the, the sales charge and was, was doing all the, uh, the selling. When did you know it was the right time to bring on your first salesperson that wasn't you? Talking about something that's diff more difficult now, like product market fit almost. Yeah. It's that whole conversation... There's different ways people talk about measuring it. And for me, you can be hoodwinked, right? Because the number of clients or revenue would give you the impression that you've got product market fit, yeah. but you still might not. I think in today, again, depends on the vertical, but like when you create the minimum amount of friction in the sales process and make it easy enough for someone to sell it without you and that, you know, you can sell it consistently enough like that. For me, that's the key to product market fit. You know, if you bring in if you bring in a couple of your first BDRs or AEs, and they're still struggling to to sell it, you know, then it's not easy enough to sell it. Like sales is never easy; it's really hard; it's a grind. But like, if they can't close deals and something's not right, you probably haven't got product market fit yet for whatever reason. Yeah, you know, whether you're doing something new or the product's not quite baked out enough, or yeah. 
So for me, it's how how easy it is to get a non-founder to sell equals product market fit. And do you see it as because it's it's kind of a, a a challenge as to where the the sales kind of world has moved. And sometimes now it's not as straightforward as just hiring an AE. It's more, do you hire an SDR first or do you hire an SDR and an AE? And even marketing kind of comes into it. Uh, and there's arguments to say that you have to hire all three at the same time or the BDR marketing comes first and then the AE after that. Well, you've got like an MDR and, you know, a marketing <laughs> development rep and yeah. depends on your approach to demand gen and the funnel. Yeah. Sometimes if you if you bootstrapped and you take a limited amount of funny money, sorry, you have to make harder choices and smarter choices. The more money you take, the more you're going to spend and yeah. just try everything. So I don't know, I've, I, even at Royal Gateway and at Jiminy, very much in the early days bootstrapped and, you know, very high growth, but in a capital efficient way. And we've always done that. You know, so I can I can only go off that experience. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I, th- I think ideally you need a balance. You do need to get the brand out there, but you want you you want to hire in twos if you can and made that yeah. mistake in the past. So you know, you do need the first couple of you need like in the beginning you need an all rounder in marketing like a growth marketer that can put yeah. their hand to anything and start to get out there. But even just starting with a couple of salespeople who can still there's nothing wrong with in the very very early days doing a bit of sdr bdr and ae and while the volume's picking up and closing you know they can take inbound leads and make sure they're booked and you know i, I still don't think that's a bad thing because you might not be quite ready you might not have enough intent based leads for the outbound for the outbound team all things like that so it's, it's a balance but then if you raise a mat if you raise a massive round you you might just go for it in a completely different way so it's, it's a difficult I'll one. I'll come back. That's a really interesting point. I'll come back to you on that. When you went to hire your first AE, so if you were talking and advising uh, a first-time founder who's who's walking your the the, the early part of your your pathway that you've been, mm-hmm. if they are a technical founder, so they've never run a sales team before, were you in an advantage point that you were able to hire maybe more junior? people to be able to coach and mentor and what would you advise someone who's never been a sales leader before who's managed to obviously get some sales done through the passion for the product and let's let's say i've not seen anyone who can sell a product better than a founder because they love it would you advise someone to hire a more senior salesperson someone who's been there and done it um, for that first sales because that early hire how in your opinion how critical is that first person who's going out there having contact with clients maybe for the first time who don't know who you are yeah again i think it depends how complicated your product is you know is it smb is it mid-market is it enterprise does it have complexity so you got you got to take all those things most times from what my experience on people like bringing in someone who's got a shitload of experience yeah. and worked in a big company on a big salary very rarely works. You okay. know, I do, I do believe in a philosophy where like people have something to prove and they feel like they're on a trajectory up, you know, like it doesn't yeah. matter what high, like finding people who can grow into the role, but have good foundations or a lot of the skills to do it. I think, I think just generally you talked about it there, you, the founder, 
honestly, what I'd look for is someone that has the energy and the passion and the enthusiasm to sell that way. Yeah. Um, and that, that you, you've done, I mean, how many interviews have you done, James, to sell people over the years? Hundreds of thousands, I reckon now. Yeah. <laughs> over 18 but, years. There's still only a certain percent of you, a certain percent of them would have ever put that enthusiasm in you on that call yeah. and injected that into you. And I think, you know, whether product knowledge is missing or they don't understand everything, whatever, but having that energy, enthusiasm and passion that the founder has, I would look for that. If that's yeah. all I knew as a as technical founder, can I have someone who cares as much as I do? Yeah. And that'll probably get you quite far. I like know. it. I like it. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned there about someone coming from a big company with a big salary. Mm. Is it the big salary or the big company that doesn't make it work? Probably both. I don't know. Sometimes you, you, we were just talking about you're a Fulham fan and we are talking about football yeah. before we come on. You know, someone comes from a big club like Real Madrid and they go down a level, they feel like they're doing that club a favour and they yeah. never perform in the same way. I don't know. I just think like <clears throat> there's that expectation of, having that grit and determination to go, I want to prove something. I'm, yeah. I'm, lear I'm learning enough new things here. You know, startup is a, it's a roller coaster. Things are constantly yeah. changing. I think it doesn't, doesn't really matter on age, money, whatever. It's just a certain type of person that's up for that environment and that challenge. Yeah. Um, but often if, they, if they've been quite happy working at IBM for seven years and Atos for another five years, like, are they really that type of person? Because what have they, otherwise they would have got, no, oh, this is, there's lots of red tape, it's taking long and, you know, there's not, I'm, I'm not influenced. A lot of the time I see it, even with our engineers, am I having a big enough impact on that business every single day yeah. where when I'm writing code or I'm bringing people up and cold calling, am I making a difference and is it visible? Yeah. I think you want people who are passionate about that because that's startup people, right? They want to feel like they're contributing. It doesn't matter on their necessarily where they worked before. It's, that's kind of what I think yeah. we look for or one of the things we look for. Where's your thought? Because like, everybody will say to me, I want to hire an A player. Find me that top 1%, that top 10%. And we'll be quite frank and say to you, look, in my opinion and from what I've seen, those top, salespeople that earn a lot of money and do a lot they won't tend to entertain businesses before series b because they know there's market fit they know there's referable clients and let's face it 99 percent of salespeople will look for the easiest route down the hill okay they want to sell something that people need not what they want um, and they want to make sure that they've got a capability to go out there and, uh, and do that mm. how hard then does that make you at a or, or pre-series A when some people will look to do it, when actually stop looking for that absolute worldie because they probably won't. They probably will cost too much because mm. they have a certain value. And also they're not going to be able to, you know, people will often talk about doubling base. And it's not always the most critical thing pre-series A, is it? It's new logos. It's about understanding. It's about energy and, um, and yeah. enthusiasm, about setting yourself up. <laughs> To scale past A to B, would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I look. I, I I think sometimes someone who's a top performer in one business, it might not work in another. Yeah, because there's so many dynamics, like the relationships, how they're managed, the leadership. Mm. Like someone goes and crushes it at LinkedIn, selling sales nav. Well, everyone knows what bloody LinkedIn is. Yeah, like yeah. you know, I'm not saying it's not there's not hard jobs there, but it's not like hitting someone up. <laughs> 
yeah. interested in sales now for your team. Like that. I mean, yeah. yeah, what's this chimney thing? Never heard of it, you know. It's so I don't know. Like I think again, you're looking for certain type of people. Some people won't fit into certain systems or certain ways of working. I'm definitely like we were talking earlier about what you look for when you're recruiting. You know, definitely if I've got four AEs, yeah, and I think well, I'm hiring two more. They they might be on paper the right people, but are they going to fit into the dynamic of what we already have? Yeah. Sometimes you know, I don't think we think enough about you know, like in sports, it's like, do they fit into the system? Are yeah. they going to work? You know, are they going to adapt? Are they going to change? Are they going to want to hunt some accounts? Are they going to, do you know what I mean? So I, I think it's a lot more about will that person fit into what you have and the way of working and are they going to do the things that you need to do over the next 18 months or two years? Yeah. Um, that they, they might not even be me, doing in their role right now, you know? I think that's a critical part. And, and I think a lot of sales leaders will skip past that because they need a bum on a seat or they've got a mate uh, or not even necessarily a mate, but someone who's worked with them in the past that, that mm-hmm. has done well um, and they bring them in. And I think it's probably a 70, 80% failure rate when you bring in a salesperson from, from somewhere else um, to come into your business and, um, and do it particularly if you've gone into something totally different there isn't uh, due diligence got into as to why somebody was successful. It's just like you did well um, in you go. And it's similarly around the hiring of, you know, the amount of times where we've got in to replace a VP of sales and you look at the due deal that went in, it's like, what um, ARR did they build out? And they give you the figure and it's like, okay, that's cool. No due diligence in how they got to that. What was, what was signed up before they got there. Uh, and there's, there's lots of data can tell you an, an awful lot of a story we've got to that that exciting stage podcast where we we have a, a, a break from uh, you getting asked all the questions and uh, you get to ask me that one question that you've always wanted to ask a recruiter obviously we've had discussions previously about the model and people having yeah. different models and i think there are some disruptive models out there but i think overall it's a bit like politics has it really evolved in the last you know why isn't recruitment evolving People look at it and say, I don't know, from what I hear in the US, retained search now is what, 30, 35, sometimes 40%. Yeah. Why is it so high? Why does it need to be so high? So I, I guess everything is relevant to a service that you're being provided and what the value of, of what you you perceive yeah. that you are getting. You can always talk it back to the, the reasons to, I won't embarrass you and ask you which Porsche you're driving at the moment. But um, when you take it to cars... Um, yeah. you could get a car um, in the UK for five, £10,000 that will do mm-hmm. exactly what you need that car to do, okay? Mm-hmm. Take you from A to B, take your family from A to B in, in a safe way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are reasons why people will go and, um, and, and spend a lot more money on mm-hmm. a car. Um, it's the, the service and... Um, a, a, what you perceive that you are you are going to get from that and one of the most frustrating things for me around recruitment is it's not regulated Mm. Um, and that enables um, a lot of people to have a bad experience Um, also there's a little bit of a difficult thing where if you don't go retained you go contingent they're an introductory agency and Mm. if someone doesn't work out the recruiters blamed it's like well you found them and it's like, well, we introduced them to you. You did the interviews, you did the reference checks, you did the onboarding, but it's somehow the recruiter's fault. 
Um, yeah. There's no shared um, blame in it. And, <laughs> and, and most of the time I look at it, particularly if, if I, can't, I couldn't answer for everybody else. Like, but for me, I don't know if you quite often see the uh, on LinkedIn, it comes up, which probably answers it in the best way, where you've got the, um, uh, the ship that's broken down um and um, they can't fix it and they got a guy that comes out and he just pulls a, a hammer out and he just taps one bit and the engine fires up and he charges 10 grand for it and they're like what's that he says well it's 100 pound for for tapping and 9,900 of my years experience to know where to tap and how hard to tap um i've got a network over 18 years of knowing who's doing what and where and a lot of people are more likely to listen to me Mm -hmm. um, about opportunities because they know, like, and trust me. Um, and I know who's performed because I'm talking to people, um, every day, all the time. So there's, there's a huge amount of value that can be added in. Um, we quite often change processes and, to, and people, the value of what people think they want to hire. And then when we talk to them, we actually realize actually that's not what they are, are looking for. So I think, Every agency will charge the same that they're or thereabouts, but some will then just chuck you CVs and it's like, right, yeah. they, they, they chuck you a good CV and it's like, okay, they reduce it down and they get a good CV, but that's more luck than uh, a judgment. Mm -hmm. um, so if you are, if you, if you're going to hire somebody who is likely to double, particularly in sales, who's going to double their, um basic in commission by hitting the targets that you set is that 20 25 percent of base salary well spent or money lost well yeah i, I think it's interesting yeah right we, we we were talking earlier like we bought talent in-house at the start of the year and we still use recruiters when when needed yeah but it's been really successful but I don't, I don't think there's getting to a point where there's, I don't know, you, you're much closer to it, but I feel like there's no middle ground. Like I'd either have talent in-house as you grow um, or I do retain because you need the, the, yeah. the energy and the time to do it properly. Like you say, the, the middle ground of just getting the second or third round of people who, you know, may or may not fit doesn't, doesn't seem to work anymore as, you, as you're properly scaling a business. So, so I, so I would always say, if someone sat to me and said, "We're going to look to scale. We need to hire 20, 30, 40 people. You need an in-house person anyway, just to manage mm. it. Otherwise, your mm. key people's time gets taken away managing mm. interviews and and whatnot, um, which which isn't what you you should be there for. Um, when you've got that middle ground, contingent still stays high because there's a risk element to the recruiter. So if you've got four recruiters all working one job yeah. only one of those are going to fill it so you, mm. you kind of got to have your risk reward that okay if if i'm contingent and you've got four other recruiters that means i need four other jobs where there's four other recruiters to stand the chance of doing one deal so if yeah. you've got if you've got with everything when you've got more chance of filling it you're willing to where there's more of a guarantee you're more likely to come down but when there's there's competition it, there becomes a, um, a risk element around it. But I think you're absolutely right. And we've seen it now as well, particularly with what's gone on in terms of the struggles for, for salespeople. We're doing a lot more. Um, in, in fact, we're probably higher mm -hmm. on the retained um, than, um, than contingent right now. Um, yeah. But you provide a much, you're able to give a much 
greater value pool for what you're for what you're looking to um, to do. But I think sometimes where the the market's not regulated, I think uh, recruiters can get a little bit of a uh, a hard time in the value that they do, um, and also. Um, you know, sales is, I, I firmly believe that hiring salespeople is the toughest um, mm-hmm. gig to do because it's so hard. It's not like developers, like developing, getting the number of developers you need is tough, but you can give them a test to see if they can code. Let's say, let's take, Ronaldo's probably had one of his worst seasons in a long time, right? Mm-hmm. But people at the beginning of the season thought, oh, United might actually be contenders now. They've got Ronaldo, but it didn't, it didn't mm-hmm. work out. But, um, but who's, whose fault does that become? Is that uh, Mendes' fault, like the, the agent, um, for putting them in there or getting them in there? Um, I think that if we could get recruitment regulated, it would be, it'd be a thing. You cannot, you cannot scale a business paying 20, 25% basic salary of every person that you, um, that you hire yeah. and bring in. What's sure. one, one thing that, not conscious but it happened like subconsciously is like even just the brand like almost like a marketing effort you know like two of our most recent AEs came inbound yeah where they wanted they wanted to work for us they hunted us down yeah you know um they've seen stuff on LinkedIn they've seen the brand they've engaged with it they use the product themselves or whatever so like we, I think, I don't know if I worked out, I mean, yeah, maybe there's like 15, 20% of our hires this year that have been inbound. And then there's a whole other piece of giving a referral or incentive yeah. to your own team to introduce people that they know. So there are other ways as well, a balance of, you know, using, you know, how much contingency work do you want to do versus just yeah. working on really key retained roles that the business needs at a certain point in time and having, and it's hard, but once you get past, sort of 20 30 people is thinking well how do we do almost inbound how do we do referrals how do we do all yeah. these other things to make the funnel you, you know you successful have, you, you have to be spending 20 percent of your time on on recruitment and and the other thing like you're also kind of lucky in, in a sense where you don't need a a particular skill set but if you went into say for instance if you were a startup in mm-hmm. in fintech and it was um, trading technology, mm-hmm. um, whereas you needed someone who understands equities, um, mm-hmm. fixed income, then you, 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 there'll be times where you need a specialist to say, right, how many people have you got in your network who, who understand fixed income um, and can sell bonds? That's, that's when also you, you kind of need a, a recruiter to come in um, who, who really understands and knows their stuff. Um, if you're a, you know, we, we, uh, recently did a, um, a build out, uh, a, a UK build out uh, for Unifor um, who needed CCAS. They were like, we've got house um, CCAS people. Um, so again, like coming to a, uh, to, to a recruiter who's gonna know who all those people are. Um, that's where the value comes into play. If it's just SAS experience that you're looking for, again, you don't necessarily need a specialist at that point. You know, I think we also spoke about this before, you know, you've got your um, embedded, but, you know, there are certain roles, specialist roles that you will look to engage with uh, recruiters for. Um, and that's where they earn their, their stripes for. Um, not filling up your AEs, um, your, your, your kind of junior AEs. Um, and I think if you're, if you're attracting people, that's absolutely what you should be doing. 
um, for it. Once you get to Series B, there might be some big hitters you're like, um, actually, I need to go to market and find someone who's going to generate um, a million plus uh, in, in, in um, revenue uh, per year. And then you might go to a recruiter and say, look, can you, I, I need a couple of these. Can you bring them in? But, um, but yeah, I don't know if that answers it to, to as much no, more, as you would, uh, you would like. No, more of a discussion, really. I think this yeah. is interesting where the market's going. I think at different phases of the business, you, you have to apply different things. Like when you start yeah. out, you just have to use contingency and try and you haven't got the time and just think yeah. you only have certain choices as the business evolves yeah but it, i think it's just being careful with which which formats and relationships you use at what time but yeah that's i think it's that even. and the the biggest part um for me is making sure that you've got a watertight um process um the you you got your process right so you you know what you're hiring and why you're hiring You've got an interview process that identifies what you're hiring. And when I say what, I'm talking character and skill set, um, ability. Um, mm -hmm. And then the other bit where is, you know, a, you know most sales leaders I'll talk to, they'll say, I wish I could get hiring right more often. Mm -hmm. um, and I say, well, actually, I think you get onboarding wrong more than you get hiring wrong. Awesome. So yeah. if you get onboarding right and you've got all of those bits in play, then you're going to be in a winner um, situation. It's when you, you, you spend a lot of money on recruitment um, well, and salaries, because let's face it, salespeople aren't cheap. That's when you start like questioning stuff. Well, we've seen it with customers when we've done like forums and different things. Like, you know, when people are remote and they're not in the office every day and yeah. sales is, you know, challenging environment or can be bad days to have good days, like doing a um, start day check-in and end of day check-in, you know, you've got to really work on that onboarding process in a hybrid remote world, like you say, otherwise, you know, you're, you're going to churn people quicker. Yeah. Um, Excellent. Um, so um, before, so I know you've got a busy day, but before yeah. I let you uh, head off into that, if there was a couple of key things that you've learned, if you were able to start Jiminy again tomorrow, <laughs> what would you do differently in your early days or what did you learn along the way that you wished you'd known at the start? I think it's a real challenging one because there's, fundamentally it's just all part of the journey i think there's some there's some things like me and james as founders being in different geos um was not easy i think we would have made some decisions on the product quicker if we were sitting together in the same room even though we've got a great relationship and worked together for years i think i would have changed that i think i'd have us all in the same room we've been remote the whole time as a business yeah. and i think yeah, that, that definitely. So I, I would change that the first four or five, but I wouldn't do it completely remote like I did yeah. again. I think we, me and James have both said that we would be together. Um, I'm, yeah, doing it again, I'd be killed by my wife, I think. So we're not going <laughs> to go, go there. But uh, no, yeah. Like, uh, yeah, I think that's the one thing. Like remote is great, has so many benefits, but really in that first two, three years when grinding it out, can you afford to be completely remote? Yeah. It's hard, it makes it harder. Yeah. yeah, and I think I think a lot of things stem from that. That'd be my one one thing. Yeah, and Jimmy um, obviously allows more remote working. But how important do you put it that you need to get your salespeople actually in the office um, at least a couple of times a week, or do you think with Jiminy it's 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 not? You don't you don't you don't need that. Depends on the business, how established it is, how established the product is. Depends on the culture of the company and the type of salespeople, how, you know, what, what demographic they are. But 
No, I think I think salespeople generally need some sort of human interaction. Yeah. Um, so whether it's one day a week, two day a week, we, we, we let the team lead decide how they want to do it and how they want to structure it. So BDRs are in like three days plus, AEs are in two days plus because that yeah. works better for them. You know, they're in less meetings or they need to be around each other making calls. So it really depends on the team. And, and just to challenge you on that, um, on that spot, is that is that necessarily the case? Or because when you allow the leader to make a decision, will will that leader make a decision that suits them best? So i.e. I quite fancy being at home three days. So we'll come in two days. And also people say like we're a massive organization. So we've got people who who who've been and done it. They don't need to have them there. But is there an argument to say that particularly being close to product and having conversations that actually no matter your size of business, whether you're legacy, whether you're new, that salespeople should come together a couple of times a week and be working in that environment to get that high performance going yeah yeah but i think i think that just you're talking about a different thing which comes down to culture comes down to trust giving people autonomy to not just make the right decision for them but the right decision for their team and the business so i mean you're talking a much bigger thing there um (laughs) but maybe we've got time today but yeah I i think that that you know those decisions come down to culture but yeah. I, I would empower my team to do the right thing and make the, de- the right decisions for their team finance very different probably yeah. be all remote sales yeah you know, need to spend some time together build more yeah. better relationships you know everyone needs good relationships in a business that's just part of the course i mean you can't work well together but you know. Awesome. So I'm, uh, I know your schedule is uh, super tight at the moment, particularly as you're going through funding uh, and such like, but I do appreciate you taking time out to chat. Um, I think a lot of people will learn an awful lot from uh, hearing who you guys are and what you guys are up to. And uh, I think it's a definite necessary, particularly with uh, the sales we're talking to and they talk about their biggest challenges. Um, I think having something like this as part of their tech stack, I think helps alleviate a lot of those, uh, those challenges. So Thank you very much for agreeing to uh, to come on and chat. No problems, James. All right, I really enjoyed it and I'll speak to you soon.